Well, let's get rolling. We are going to pick up where we left off last week. We started talking about the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, over the last several months, we've been talking about the festivals that, that the Jewish people have celebrated. And so we've got this, this list here of these different feasts. And we've talked about this kind of ad nauseum, but I want to go through it again. Because all of these have significance. And the problem is, is this has been lost by the Western church and the modern church today because we, there, there's this anti-Semitism that's out there. And the early church wanted nothing to do with the Jewish people. They wanted to separate as far as they could. Because remember, it was the Jews that killed Jesus, and that is the way they looked at it. And so because of that, they wanted nothing to do with it. When the reality is, is, is that it was my sin and your sin that killed Jesus. He laid down his life. These guys just enacted it. But there was these feasts that they celebrate. You got in the spring, Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. Fifty days later, you get into Pentecost. Now, Christ fulfilled all of these when he came because he was our Passover lamb. He, he laid down his life willingly. The unleavened bread, bread without leaven, essentially think of matzah or crackers of some sort. Leaven is always a symbol of sin in Scripture. He had no sin when he laid down his life. And then first fruits was the idea that the priests would go and they would wrap the omer of barley and they would separate it for a period of three days after unleavened bread would take place and they would go and then at, at that beginning they would come up and this first fruit offering would take place. They would offer that to the Lord. Jesus Christ was our first fruit offering when he resurrected from the dead. Showing that God has the power over life and death. Fifty days after that, you get to the Feast of Pentecost. What was Pentecost? It was the birth of the church. When the church came into existence in Acts chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit descended upon them, Jesus told them, I need you to go wait in Jerusalem. There's 120 of them. They're in the upper room. And they are there waiting. And sure enough, that was the birth of the church. But then we get into the fall feast, and these are the ones that we've been talking about where when Christ returns, you're going to see the fulfillment of this. And the Feast of Trumpets, when they would go, they've got the blowing of the shofar. If you remember, I brought out a shofar. I attempted to blow it. It did not go well. That's why we had a video of a guy who knew what he was doing. And so we, he blows that trumpet, but it's at that sound of a trumpet when it's talking about in the twinkling of an eye, they will be taken away. It's the rapture of the church. The Day of Atonement is the holiest day in the Jewish calendar. Rosh Hashanah is the Jewish New Year where they, they, they sit down for 10 days and they go into this fasting and repentance and all of that and coming into the Holy day, so they are ready to be judged by God. That way when He comes, they can either be found worthy or not worthy. Well, for us, the only way you are found worthy is if you have been washed in the blood of Jesus that you have accepted Him as your Savior. Other than that, you're not worthy. It was only through His work. But when we get into tabernacles, and this is where we're going today, is that this is where you're going to see the establishment of that thousand-year reign, the Messianic kingdom. Now, the Jewish people are waiting right now. They believe tabernacles is when their Messiah will arrive. Those who have not accepted Jesus think that is on tabernacles. Okay? This is where we're going to go. So last week we got into kind of the Jewish background of the different things that they did. And I know it was a lot of information and not the most exciting information in the world. But that was the foundation to get to where we're going today. All right? So I want to make sure you understand that. So this is where we're at. Now, when you look at this in, in a circle of based on our time frame, what we look at, they've got this other calendar I want to show, is that here you see... The spring feast in the month of Nisan, you've got Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits. You've got Pentecost here in Savan, which is in, in that May-June range. Here you've got March-April range. But now over here, we are going into this time frame for the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot. 
in that September-October range. It always, you know, it varies a little bit on the exact day because they go off this lunar calendar. Ours is a little bit different. Um, but essentially, this is where we see all of this come into play, and they all have those weird names, all right? But they're Hebrew names, so whatever. So when we look at this, why are we talking about this? Because if you remember... That in, in the beginning, when God said, I, in Genesis chapter 1, he said that I've set the sun and the moon and the stars for the seasons. Which means, it's the word moedim, it means appointed times. It's based off of that. That's how God's time clock works. He's looked at that, and we see these different things. And these are the things that God acted to show us the coming of the Messiah, watching for that. Now, Jesus has already been here, no question about that. But what are we talking about? We're being prepared. Jesus told us, like, you need to be watchful, you need to be ready. We need to be looking for these signs. In Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 16, this is something that you guys have heard before. It says, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. All right? These festivals were a shadow picture pointing to something. What's the shadow? There's a light emanating from something creating a shadow. If you follow that shadow back to its source, you see the picture of it enlightened here. This here is the substance is Christ. That's why we're looking at this. We spent over a year going through the Old Testament, finding Christ in the Old Testament, all the different types, the shadows, the different pictures, the nuances in Scripture, all of those things. This is something we carved out at that point to do it now, to show it specifically on its own, because these things deserve their own set. So here we go. The feast in the month of Tishri, is, there's a prophetic fulfillment in these fall feasts. Now, what's interesting about this, this is the seventh feast, that lasts for seven days. Seven in the Bible is always the number of completion. This is the last feast that they are uh, mandated by Scripture to celebrate. Now, they do celebrate others. They have Hanukkah and they have Purim. We will talk about those uh, a little bit. Uh, not today, but, but we will talk about them so you have an idea what they are. But seven is always completion. And this is bringing into an idea of rest. We're going to rest from our work. They are waiting on the Messiah to appear during the Feast of Tabernacles because once that kingdom is established, all peace is brought to the world. That's what they're waiting on. That is why Peter and John and all those guys, when they kept talking to Jesus, Jesus, when are you going to set up your kingdom? He says, not for you to know. They wanted to know because they were politicking for position and all of that. But that's what they were waiting for. Remember, the Jewish people were expecting two messiahs to come one time. Not one messiah to come twice. They were not expecting the suffering servant. They had believed that Israel had become the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. The one that had been beaten and the one that was unrecognizable. That was them. But that reigning king that was going to come, that's the Messiah they were waiting on. And that's part of the reason that they didn't recognize Jesus when he showed up. Because he didn't come in on a white horse wearing a crown saying, all bow down to me. He was born in Bethlehem, which nobody went to. It was a tiny little town. It was a nothing and he walked in there very humbly and kind of walked around and did his thing. And when he was performing the miracles early on, what he kept telling about, hey, don't tell anybody about this. What did they do? They told everybody about it. Even then, they weren't even obeying Jesus. I mean, we've continued that act on to this day. But it's a season of rest. They believe that this is going to be the time when the Messiah will finally come and set up this kingdom. Now, 
What's interesting about this, and we talked about this a little bit last week, that this is the only feast where they welcome the Gentiles in, that they can have a part to play in this. Now, they cannot go into the temple, which that has a significant role because they're not allowed into the temple. Uh, there is no temple today to speak of, but, but back when there was. But when you look at this, when it was talking about all the world last week, it was, it's bringing in the Gentile and the Jews together. It's the only one where this is some sort of uh, uh, connection there. Because remember, Jews did not associate with Gentiles. If you were not a Jew, you were a Gentile. Everything else falls into that category. Now, when we look at this, what they do is, remember the practices. They, they have several things that they do, but one of the things that they are commanded to do is they build these Sukkots. S-U-K-K-O-T, these huts, essentially, where they, would, uh, they were built of sticks and different things, and they would have this roof. And I've got a picture of it. You can see, now this is more modern day, obviously. This was not thousands of years ago when they were, were doing this early on. So these things have taken on kind of a life. Of the, they actually sell these in kits now. All right? Used to be you had to go out and cut the branches. I mean, it's kind of like a build-your-own-shed thing for Menards. This is what they got. Maybe they have Menards over there. I don't know. I've never been to Israel. You guys have. You, did you see a Menards? No Menards, no Home Depot, nothing? Okay, well, fair enough. I bet they get it from Amazon. That's probably where they get it from, just like the rest of us. But anyway, you can see that they, they build these things because for those seven days, they have to live in them. And they will decorate it with fruits and nuts and different things like that because this is all a part of the fruit harvest, the dates and the figs and the olives. They're bringing those in. These all have to do with the different harvest times, all of these feasts. But they would live in them, and then they would be sort of slotted roofs because the light should come in, but it should be more dark than light, but you should be able to see out and see the stars. Now, why do you think they were supposed to look at the stars? Because they're always looking at the stars because these are the signs of the appointed times. It's how they know when the moon hits a certain time. And so that is how they are just how they work everything around. But this was to remind them of when God brought them out of Egypt and took them in, through the, the desert, through the wilderness, and they lived in these things. It was a reminder of that of God's provision for them. So this is kind of what it looks like modern day, uh, just as you have some sort of a picture here. But yeah, they are, they're pretty nice. I bet they have air conditioners and, and satellite TV in them too. So anyway, but let's look at this word tabernacle because that's what the Feast of Tabernacles means. The word tabernacles means to dwell, to be with, all right? You see this in John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, here's a verse you guys all know. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Who is the Word? It's Jesus. Very good. You get a gold star. Yes, we know this verse, right? But let's jump down to verse 14. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That word dwelt there? Tabernacle comes from the Greek word skiano. It means to tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. This is the idea. is that God's presence is with us. That's what John was saying. That's what this festival is doing. Is that this king, this mighty reigning Messiah, this king is going to come and reign with us. Now, with this word here, the skiano stuff. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to kick over a sacred cow, okay? So I'm going to apologize in advance. You have to promise not to hate me, okay? That's all I'm asking. Don't throw things at me. Um, Stan, if you've got your gun, you can shoot at me because I'm pretty sure you won't hit me. So I couldn't resist. I'm sorry. Lord, I apologize. I'm sorry. I just... Did I mention Stan almost beat Paul in the trap shoot? Almost. Almost. Only counts in, what is it, 
horseshoes and hand grenades, something like that. All right. Here's what, here's what it is. Jesus was very likely not born on December 25th. I know it. I know it. All right. It's okay. We're going to be all right. All right. You can still open presents. You can still dress up like Santa. Whatever gets you float your boat, I don't care. Very likely wasn't, and let me explain why. Is that the belief here, and I, and I agree with this thought, is that he was very likely born during the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, let me explain why that's significant. When we talk about that he tabernacled among us, that's what John said in John 1.14, is that we get this picture going forward. It kind of all lines together. But in order to show you this, I'm going to have to kind of back up and build a little bit of a case for this, okay? So we're going to go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 23. We're going to start in verse 8. If you brought your Bible, I'm going to let you turn there for just a second. I always have them up on the screen for you. But it's good to go back and, and look at these things because I want to show you something here. In 2 Chronicles 23, verse 8, it says, So the Levites and all Judah did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded. And each man took his men who were to be on duty on the Sabbath with those who were going off duty on the Sabbath. For Jehoiada the priest had not dismissed the divisions. Now, there's a couple of things that I want to point out here that we often do not understand because we don't get the big picture. Remember, the Levites were the priests. The line of Aaron, they could be the high priest, the rest of the Levites, and what fell into that became the priest. There is an establishment of different orders. It talks about them going on duty and off duty. They would serve twice a year for one week, Sabbath to Sabbath. They would come into the, the, the temple, and then they would do their service and all of that kind of stuff. But there were certain orders, and they were allowed. There were 24 orders of the, or it talks about the divisions, 24 divisions is a better way to say it, of these different priests, okay? Now, Josephus talks about this, and I'm going to read a quote from him. This is out of Antiquities of Jews. If you don't know who Josephus was, Josephus was a, a Jewish historian. He was hired by the Romans to write down the history of the Jews. That's why one of his books is called The Antiquities of the Jew. Now, we go back and we look at that because it often lines up with Scripture, which was not his intention. He wasn't, like, keeping his Tanakh next to him and saying, oh, yep, we'll just write this down word for word, because it gives you more detail sometimes than what scripture does or it touches on stuff that maybe scripture didn't but here's what it says but David being desirous of ordaining his son king of all the people called together their rulers to Jerusalem with the priests and the Levites and having numbered the Levites he found them to be 38,000 from 30 years old to 50 that's a lot of people in that, that time frame out of which he appointed 23,000 to take care of the building of the temple it's a lot taking care of the temple. And out of that same 6,000 to be judges of the people and scribes, 4,000 for porters to the house of God, and as many for singers to sing the instruments which David had prepared, as we have said already. He divided them also into courses. This is the same thing, the divisions. And when he separated the priests from them, he found that these priests, 24 courses, 16 of the house of Eleazar and 8 of that of Ithamar. And we're going to go into who those are because it doesn't matter for what we're talking about. And he ordained that one course should minister to God eight days from Sabbath to Sabbath. And thus were the courses distributed by Lot in the presence of David and Zadok and Abiathar, the high priest and all of the rulers. And that course which came up first was written down as the first and accordingly the second and so on to the 24th. And this partition hath remained to this day. He also made 24 parts of the tribe of Levi. Levi. And then they cast lots. They came up in the same manner for the courses of eight days. He also honored the posterity of Moses and made them keepers of the treasures of God and of the donations which the king dedicated. He also ordained that all the tribe of Levi, as well as the priests, should serve God night and day as Moses had enjoined them. Now, what is known for sure is that the priests were divided into 24 courses. They served one week at a time from Sabbath to Sabbath. 
In addition, there were three weeks of the year in which all of the courses would be on duty. You want to guess which those three were? Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. What were the three feasts that all male, able-bodied Jews were supposed to come back to Jerusalem to make sacrifice in the temple? Passover, or unleavened bread, because it's one day to the next, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. So they would all be on duty during those time frames because there was a lot of work to do. Now, 24 divisions, each serving two weeks per year, plus three additional weeks makes up 51 weeks, which was a standard Jewish year. Okay, we have 52, a little bit different. Now, what does this have to do with anything? Well, what we're getting at is how do we figure out when Jesus was born? Because this is what we're looking at is this tabernacle, the idea of God being with us. All right, we see these 24 uh, divisions set up in the priesthood of when they would serve. We know when John the Baptist was born. Who was his father? It was Zechariah. Zechariah was a priest. He served in the eighth setting, the eighth division. So let's look at Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5. It says, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, if I'm saying that correctly. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinance of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God, in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord, and the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Okay, a lot of stuff to unpack there. Now, what we understand is that he was according to the, uh, of Abiashar, if I'm saying that right, Abiashar, excuse me. He was of that division, specifically, okay? Now, I'm going to show you here in a minute, that was the eighth division, but he was of that division specifically. Now, the Lord comes to him, sends the angel Gabriel to tell him his wife is pregnant while he's on duty, right? Only two weeks of the year that this could possibly be. So while he's on duty, then it talks about his lot falling uh, to burn incense. Now, there were way more priests and Levites than were necessary for most part to run the temple, all right? There's more than 18,000 of them. So they were chosen by lost for specific tasks. Most of the time that they would go in there in their service, they would honestly sit around and do nothing. It's like government employees, right? Street workers, right? One guy holding up the shovel, three guys watching him hold it, right? That's how it works. It's just kind of the same thing. That's a joke. If we, if we got any street workers, I apologize, but, but it's, we know it's true. It's all right. But, but besides those three major festivals, when everybody was coming back, a lot of times they wouldn't have a lot to do. So this is a huge honor for him. Because he actually gets to serve God. Remember, in order to serve God, you were the mediator between man and God. You were, you were uh, uh, um, ministering to the Lord here. And so given the number of priests, the opportunity here is very likely once in a lifetime. I mean, remember when they cast lost, it was like rolling dice. That's almost exactly what it was. And that's how they figured out what it was. Now, this offering in the temple would precede the morning sacrifice and would be following the evening sacrifice. So there's twice in this day it could happen. Here the angel tells them that they are going to have a baby. This baby is John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. After this happens, what you see in the story in Luke here is that his wife hides for five months. Then on the sixth month, Gabriel shows up and announces to Mary that she's going to have a baby, Jesus, right? 
So we've got this time frame this is laying out. Now, let's look at these orders of the divisions in 1 Chronicles 24. Now, I'm going to start in verse 1, but we are going to skip around a bunch here. Just so, I just want you to see it so you know that I'm not making this stuff up. It says, now these are the divisions of the sons of Aaron. The sons of Aaron were Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Remember, we saw those names earlier. Okay? And Nadab and Abihu died before their father and had no children. Therefore, Eleazar and Ithamar ministered as the priests. Remember when it was talking about David dividing them up? That's what it was. Then David with Zadok and the sons of Eleazar and Ahimelech and the sons of Ithamar divided them according to the schedule of their service. There were more leaders found than the sons of Eleazar than the sons of Ithamar, and thus they were divided. Among the sons of Eleazar were sixteen heads of their father's houses and eight heads of their father's houses among the sons of Ithamar. Thus they were divided by lot, one group as another, for there were officials of the sanctuary and the officials of the house of God, from the sons of Eleazar and from the sons of Ithamar. Now, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit here down to verse 7. But you see those same names that Josephus used specifically talking about this. We didn't go into a lot of details of who they were, but you see them again. Now, the first... The first lot fell to Jehoram, the second to Jejiah, the third to Haram, the fourth to Seroram, the fifth to Malkajah, the, the sixth to Midjamin, I can't say these names, the seventh to Hakas, but what is the eighth? Abijah. So Zechariah was of the order of Abijah. He was that eighth saying so you could go down to the ninth and the tenth, the eleventh, all the way down to the twenty-third and the twenty-fourth, and then verse 19. It says, This was the schedule of their service for coming into the house of the Lord according to their ordinance by the hand of Aaron, their father, as the Lord God of Israel had commanded them. So you guys see this. You see the eighth here. This isn't stuff that I'm pulling out of thin air. This is coming straight from the Bible itself. Now I want you to look at this chart here. We lay this out. When you put these up against the weeks and the months that they follow here, here you've got Passover, so they would all be there. But you've got one, two, all the way down to eighth. Now this would be in the third month, all right? The third month is when you would see this one take place. Now, you, this nothing. it's the month of Savan. It's nothing too exciting, except it's just following Passover. It's in those kind of spring seasons that we would think of, most of the part. But then you continue to go down further. And you get down here into the ninth month of Kislev. This is number of days since Mary's convention. This is the, the six-month time frame from the third month to the ninth month. Okay? Now, the ninth month where Mary's conception was is, uh, happens to fall into something that you have heard of um, in the month of Kislev. You know what happens in the month of Kislev? Hanukkah, the festival of lights. Very likely, Hanukkah. Yeah, i got to get that little phlegm in there, okay? I'm being corrected. Hanukkah. But very likely, Jesus was conceived during this festival, which is interesting. Now, if we take this whole idea of, of Jesus being conceived during the Hanukkah, it doesn't have to be specific to those eight days necessarily, but you take those time, you go up 280 days, which is a typical gestation period, where does that happen to fall? The month of Tishri, the seventh month, the fall feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. Do you guys see how this thing's all line up, very likely Jesus was not born on December 25th, okay? Christmas will never be the same, and it's all my fault. I'm so sorry. We're still going to celebrate Christmas. It's still awesome. We still like candy and cookies and all that stuff. Now, Another thing about this, which is interesting, is that during this time after Jesus, uh, they, were, they were going to Jerusalem. It says that, you know, they said that there was a census, and there were several censuses going on um, during this time frame. 
there is a dinosaur walking in the back hallway. <laughs> Our children's ministry is pretty awesome. Sorry, it was a T-Rex. I'm sorry. If you see a T-Rex, you point it out. All right? It's okay. What was I talking about? Oh, yeah, Joseph and Mary. So they would, after, after Jesus was born, they said they were going to have the census taken and all of that kind of thing. That was definitely true. But they were making their way towards Jerusalem. Why would they do that? Is during these times, what three feasts did they have to go back for? You have unleavened bread. You have Pentecost. You have tabernacles. Why would they be going back to Jerusalem? Very likely to go make a sacrifice in the temple because he was an able-bodied male. And he took his wife with him. You guys see how these things are all starting to connect? I mean, it's very important that we understand that. Now, let's get into some of the specificities of what Jesus was doing when he was here. In Exodus chapter 23, we're going to talk about this here just for a minute. In verse 14, it says, Three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty. And the feast of harvest, which is Pentecost, okay? And remember, we talked about all these different names that they had for these. The first fruits of your labors, which you have sown in the field. And the feast of ingathering tabernacles. At the end of the year, when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field, three times in a year, all your mail shall appear before the Lord your God. This is what I'm talking about. He would have been making his way back to Jerusalem because he was able to. The Feast of Ingathering, as I said, is tabernacle. Now, um, what would happen is on the last day of this feast, there's this last great day, is what they call it. There's seven days of the feast, they've added an eighth. They call it the last great day, the great day, whatever. The high priest would be in the temple mount, and he would leave the temple mount. And all the priests would line up shoulder to shoulder. And I talked about this a little bit. In fact, I got this picture here of the, uh, the map that we were talking about. There you go. So he's up here is where he starts, okay? And they would, they would line up shoulder to shoulder, and he would process through, and he'd have this either golden uh, uh, pitcher or bronze, very likely bronze. It would have made more sense for the temple service. Bronze pitcher. And he would walk all the way from here. He would walk all the way down to the Pool of Siloam, and he would fill it with water. And as he was going back, they would be holding these palm branches, and they'd be shaking them, and they're shoulder to shoulder. And the further and closer he got, the more uh, rambunctious the people would be. I mean, if you've ever been to a major football game, uh, one where the crowds are intense and like the noise is unbelievable. That's what it needs to be like. Now, if you're if you're a Missouri fan, you've never been to a great football game, okay? But but if you're a Nebraska fan, then you have. All right? It's, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm really not. All right. But they would be going back, and the place would they'd be shaking them louder, and they'd be chanting, and they would they would uh, chant these psalms and all of that. But the crowd is getting more energetic and more energetic as they go. And he would come up, and then he would get up to the bronze altar where they would sacrifice, and he would march around it seven times. Okay? The place is going nuts. And then he would quiet the crowd and he would pour out the water on that pitcher, or on that, that fire, essentially. And, the, I mean, it would get, like, eerily quiet. And they would, uh, you would hear that, that sizzling of the, the water hitting those coals, okay? Keep that in mind as we get into John chapter 7. Because I want you to see what Jesus is doing here. John chapter 7, we're going to read all the way through this. I'm going to interject as we go. John chapter 7, verse 1, it says, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. For the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. What feast? Tabernacles. It's time for tabernacles, okay? 
We get what's going on. His brothers therefore said to him, depart from here and go into Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. Why are they telling him this? Because all able-bodied Jews are supposed to go into Jerusalem. They need to get going. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. All right, he's getting a hard time from his brothers. Ever happened to you? It's happened to me. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not fully come. When he said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. They're trying to get him to go, because he's supposed to go. Those are the rules. You go up there. Those are the rules. He says, my time's not here yet. The dinosaur's back, just so you know. Yeah, y'all can turn around and look. She's moving quickly. I don't know why she didn't just come in and sit down. It'd be great. But he's saying, you guys go. I'm staying here in Galilee. He's telling them to go. Now, this is, this is a spit in the face in the tradition. All right? But they're commanded to go. So this is a big deal. And that's why his brothers are giving him a hard time. You're calling yourself this Messiah. You're not even obeying the Torah. Let's look at verse 10. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast. Not openly, but as it were in secret. So he did go. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, he is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. There's a conflict going on. Well, he's supposed to be here and he's not here. He's snuck in the back door. They can't find him. So they're griping about him. They say, no, 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 he's good. He, he, he's Jesus. He can do whatever he wants. I was like, nope, he's a false prophet. He's a liar, whatever. I mean, they're going back and forth. But they didn't get real loud about it because any mention of that name, Jesus, the Jews were seeking to find him and kill him. That's why he kept hiding. Let's jump to verse 14. Now, about the middle of the feast, all right, seven days, what would it be? About day three, four, somewhere in that range, right? Jesus went up into the temple and taught. Now, remember, big deal here. There's a lot of activity going on in the temple. Jesus marched right up there and started teaching. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters having never studied? It's interesting. Now, he was considered a rabbi teacher. They talked to him about that. But he didn't sit underneath your traditional Jewish. Remember how that worked. They would have the rabbis who would take on their own disciples, and they would teach them all that. Who did Jesus disciple under? God. I mean, he, he is what he is. Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine. But his who sent me, if anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteous is in him. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keep the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Which is very true. They'd gone to this man-made doctrine. They were not following the letter of the law. The people answered and said, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus in answer said to them, I did one work and you all marvel. Talking about a, a miraculous event that took place. Moses therefore gave you circumcision. Not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made, made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Now remember, to be a Jew, you had to be circumcised because that brought you underneath the Mosaic Covenant. Before Joshua could take the people into the Promised Land, they had to circumcise all the males. They were supposed to do it on the eighth day. They hadn't been doing it. You were not underneath that covenant between God and, and Israel unless you were circumcised. 
But he's giving them a hard time. He's like, now you guys do this on the Sabbath, but you're giving me a hard time because I heal the man on the Sabbath. There was no provision against that. Nothing in there about that. Verse 25. Now, some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? They're starting to question. Maybe they know something we don't. This is the Jesus they were looking to kill. Maybe he is the Christ. However, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. How do they know where he's from? He was from Bethlehem. They knew him. He was, a, he was a, from a little tiny town. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple saying, You both know me and you know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know, referring to the Father. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Therefore they sought to take him. But no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? There's confusion going on, because some are like, well, maybe he is the Christ. But it's like, when that Christ comes, can he possibly do more signs than this guy? He's healing people. He's raising the dead. He's cleansing the lepers. And he's declaring forgiveness of sins. Those are all messianic jobs. And yet he's doing them. It's like, you're telling me somebody's going to do more than this guy? And the Pharisees want him gone, because he is wrecking their system. Look at verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is the thing that he said? You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. He's speaking spiritually. These guys aren't picking up on it. It's like, oh, you're going out of town. Oh, I I see. You think you can go hide over in the land of the Greeks or something like that? No, that ain't going to work. You know, I mean, it's just just ludicrous because he's not talking like that. But they want him gone, and they want to get a hold of him. Now watch verse 37. On the last day, that day, great day of the feast, okay? Remember, eighth day here. Remember the high priest walking up, carrying that picture. All the people are getting loud and getting super noisy. They're shaking those palm branches. He's walking up. He marches around seven times around that altar. He's ready to pour out the water. Before he does that, he lifts up his hands to tell the crowd to get quiet. And it gets eerily quiet. You could hear a pen drop because they all want to hear that sound of the cold. They're waiting on their Messiah to appear. They think after that seventh time in the pouring on the water, here the Messiah is going to appear. He's going to be right now. And so on that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. At that moment, where they're waiting on the Messiah to appear, they're getting ready to pour out that picture, which was a representation of the Holy Spirit of God being poured on all Israel. Jesus makes the statement, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. He just made a declaration in front of everybody on one of the busiest days in the year at the temple. I am your Messiah. This is huge, guys. The Feast of Tabernacles. 
They're waiting on the Messiah to appear. He's standing right in front of it. He's making a declaration that only the Messiah could make. Look at verse 40. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, truly, this is the prophet. What prophet are they talking about? Maybe the precursor to the Messiah. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. They're confused because he's saying all the right things and he's doing all the right things. And yet he's from Galilee. He came from Galilee. The Messiah ain't coming from Galilee. I mean, Jan was talking about it. We talk Galileans are like the country bumpkins of, of Jerusalem, right? I mean, you just you go out there to the sticks, okay? It's just like there's just no, there's no two ways around it. The Messiah can't come from over there. He's too good for that. Why would he associate with these people? And he's got to be of the seed of David. It's Jesus, he's surely not that. I mean, he just they're confused. But Jesus is making this bold claim, I am here. He is tabernacling among them. You guys see how powerful this is? You see what scripture is? It's hidden there. You've got to know the history and the context to catch all of this stuff. But Jesus is making a very bold claim here. He's standing up. But he goes one step further. Because if you read chapter 7 to chapter 10, and we're not going to do this because you all want to go home. But from chapter 7 to chapter 10, it's all Jesus laying these things out. Now, you remember last week, one of the things that they do is they're doing these, this, this festival of tabernacles, these, these great altar, or excuse me, these, these lampstands. And they would light these things, and some of them would be 75 feet tall. They were huge. And they would light them, and it would be so bright that they said you could sit way away, like the whole city of Jerusalem is lit up. You could read in the darkest of night. They didn't have electricity, right? And so there was, it was extremely powerful. And so that's the end of chapter 7. But there's a verse in chapter 8 that we often overlook. In chapter 8 and verse 12 it says, Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, we're talking about the tabernacles, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He's looking at all of those lights that are going on during the Feast of Tabernacle, where in which they could read their Torah, and many of the priests did, and they would declare these things, and they're, they're reciting these psalms. He said, those lights are about me. I'm the light of the world. All of it's about Jesus. He's making these declarations. It's so powerful when you begin to put all the pieces together. It's like this puzzle. When we put all the pieces together, now we can start to see the picture. But this is what he did while he was here. But what happens when he returns? This messianic kingdom, this, this thousand-year reign, the one that they're waiting on right now, they're, waiting, they're going to do exactly what I just told you they, they do, is that there's going to be a guy that's going to go up there, and they're going to march down, and they're going to do the pool, and they're going to do all this stuff that's going to try as best they can with no temple, and the pool of Siloam is still being excavated as far as I know, and, and all of this other stuff. But they're waiting on the Messiah to appear here very quickly. And very likely when he returns to set up his kingdom, it's going to be during this same time frame. And next week, we're going to get into that a little bit more. You guys with me? You guys see how powerful this word is? is we just don't even have a clue. We got to quit just glancing through it and grabbing one verse at a time and say, oh, this sounds good. I like this one, this one. I'll get a tattoo of this one. This one's nice. You know, we have got to allow scripture to interpret scripture and see where all of this is going because every bit of it is powerful. And the word of God is true and is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is the most powerful thing on this planet. When you get a hold of the word of God, great things can happen. Amen?